You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and it's wonderful to have your company wherever you may be listening. Hey, before we introduce today's guest, I just want to say a quick thank you. We've had so many huge episodes over the last little while, huge listener numbers for some of my most recent guests. And the podcast in general just keeps on growing in popularity. So thank you so much for the role you play in that, simply by clicking and listening every time we send out a new episode. But enough of that. Let's get on to today's episode. And regular listeners will know that we kind of have two types of interviews here on the Team Guru podcast. There's the expert and the profile. A lot of my guests are experts in their field. They bring a particular insight into something relevant to us as leaders working consciously to grow as professionals and people, like the wonderful Jen Jackson a few episodes ago talking about the power of communication, or Donna McGeorge and her insight into 25-minute meetings. But every now and then, we get someone on the show and do a profile episode. This is one of those. And what a profile we have for you. Cindy Hook is the Chief Executive for Deloitte Asia Pacific. Cindy leads, directly or indirectly, 2,800 partners and 45,000 professionals across 17 countries. And I have to tell you, I went to Deloitte's offices here in Brisbane to conduct this interview. And as I was sitting in reception, a, a very nice reception too, may I say, I saw Cindy moving around the building, talking with some other senior people in the firm. I hadn't met her yet but I knew it was her. There was absolutely no doubt who was in charge of that organization. Cindy is personal. She's clever. She's a powerful communicator. And best of all for us, Cindy is acutely aware of the journey she's been on to get where she is. She understands the lessons she's learned along the way. She's clear about the big career decisions she had to make. She's open about her mistakes, and she's completely in tune with the gravity of the position she holds. This episode of the podcast was organized and produced in collaboration with Wimmark, Women in Mining and Resources Queensland. They're a diverse community of passionate people collaborating to connect, nurture, and support women. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cindy Hook. Cindy Hook, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. So we're sitting here in the luxurious offices of Deloitte in Brisbane. You've flown in just last night, I believe, and uh, you're a big boss here in Deloitte. And we're going to talk about your role a lot more as we go through this conversation. You're such a big boss, in fact, for the first time ever, we have an audience to this podcast. People are sitting in listening. There they are over there because they're so interested in what you've got to say about your career and, and this organization and your, the people that you've met along the way. But we're going to get to all of that. I want to learn a little bit more about the early days. We all start with a technical skill. We all have a trade or a, or a degree that we go into the workforce with and we start that way. Some people stay there for the rest of their career and some people spring their way up the ladder and find themselves in the type of position that you're in. So I know that my podcast listeners are super interested in that, in that phase, because the vast majority of us us are there. We're the doers, we're the technical knowers and doers within organizations. And those with ambition 
They want to know the secret. How do you become one of those who breaks out of that and starts moving into more senior roles? So I know that you worked for 20 years as a CPA for Deloitte in the US, in San Francisco. 20 years is quite a long time. That might have been a a kind of get stuck thing, but you didn't get stuck. You've moved a long way since then. I would love to know about the journey from there. And I know journey is a cliche word, but it's actually a pretty good one for this. What did you do? What was deliberate? What happened by chance? Was it all planned or did it just unfold? Tell me all about it. Yeah. So thanks, David. There's a lot in that question. I probably stumbled a little bit into uh, accounting. I was always good at math and more technical things in high school. And so I majored in accounting and then good accountant accounting majors tend to go to the big four accounting firms, which is what I did. Never did I think uh, when I joined Deloitte in 1986 that I would be sitting here 33 years later as the CEO of Deloitte Asia Pacific. And in fact, at that time, when I, I first joined the firm, I thought, you know what? Be a good thing to become a chartered accountant. That's um, a good goal. That takes about two years. I'll do that, and then I'll move on to go do something else. And I would say, you know, why am I still here? It's because I've continued to get different opportunities, even within an organization. Deloitte's a huge organization. We operate in 150 countries. I've got to work on three continents, serve hundreds of clients. So while a lot of young people would look at me and go, oh my gosh, you're like a dinosaur. How could anyone stay at one company for 30 years? Uh, They find that almost unimaginable. I don't feel like it's ever been just one job. I've gotten to do so many things. Now, let me take on your question about technical skills. I do think that's critical. And I did spend probably the first six to eight years of my career very dedicated to building and honing my craft as an accountant and auditor and got very good at it. And it is that foundation. I think every young person should say, there's got to be something that is my core competency that I'm going to become excellent at. And then you can branch out for that. I, I don't think it anybody can really come out as a generalist and just say, I'm going to try a little bit of everything. I'm going to be a CEO. You know, yeah, and I'll be CEO. You got you to have some foundation. So you've been very modest there. I, I want to know, okay, I'm going to ask it to you this way. Why you? Of all the CPAs that have worked in Deloitte over the last 30-odd years, of all your cohort, the people who sort of started about the same time as you, even in the same geographic area as you, why is it that you were the one who has risen to the level of chief executive? Why? What did you have that maybe others didn't have, whether it was a knowledge, a skill, a talent, or an ambition? Certainly, like I said, my ambition was never to be CEO. But some of the things in my makeup, I think, helped. I'm very competitive. One of my core values is I love to be challenged. I never want to get bored. I always want to be trying something new, pushing for something new. I think that benefited me. I took some pretty bold moves that at the time were quite nerve-wracking for me. Calculated risks throughout my career. Give me an example of one of those. Um, There's been a bunch of them, but the biggest uh, would have been moving to Australia. That Hicksville backwater joint. Oh, you know, the U.S., the attitude of, oh, it's such a small market. Why would you go there? What will you ever learn? And in fact, I probably learned more when I moved to Australia than I certainly was learning 
in the same place uh, because you have to become adaptable and adopt. So that, that moved to Australia when the prevailing career advice, my closest mentors and advisors were saying, don't do it. Really? But I said, my gut tells me that's going to be a good move. I want a different challenge. I want to try something new. I'm going to go for it. What was the role that got you here? Was there an attractive step up within the organization that was the hook? It was still within my core competency, like we talked about. I'm I still going to be in the audit practice, but it was an opportunity to lead Sydney. So first I moved to Australia and I was going to lead the practice in Sydney. And then pretty quick, I got the national role for audit and then ultimately uh, the CEO gig. So increasing levels of responsibility off my core competency. I could not have done those roles if I was not a CPA, a really great auditor that had served many clients across uh, you know, big clients in the US and in Australia. So how did you start to put yourself in a position to be given that type of opportunity where you were coming to, to be the boss of CPAs or assurance, perhaps it was in Sydney? How did you make yourself known? How did you make your ambition heard where you were based in San Francisco? You know, I focused a lot on doing a really good job. I mean, everybody who gets to these roles works hard. I do work hard. But I focused on delivering outcomes, and that got noticed. And then I have to tell you, we talk about sponsorship and mentorship. I was sponsored at various points in my career by a number of different people, but specifically the former CEO of Deloitte Australia, Guillaume Swigers, who I have uh, the highest regard for. He made sure that I was getting the right exposure and the right experience to prove myself. What do you think he saw in you? Because... CEOs of large organizations don't sponsor just anyone. They don't put their reputation on the line in that way. He must have seen something pretty powerful in you. I mean, I had sponsors before that that recommended him to me initially, and then I proved myself to him by delivering outcomes. And I think I became known as a change agent, somebody that wasn't just going to accept the status quo, but was going to challenge, but do it in a respectful way. You have to do that. You can't just come in with a big American attitude to Australia and say, oh, this is how we did it in the U.S. We'll do it that way here. That, that, that'll shut everybody off in, in a five seconds. You got to say, okay, what are some of the experience I've had somewhere else and how could I apply that by understanding this context? Do you see that gig in Sydney here in Australia as your first real leadership opportunity? Was that the first time you saw yourself as a leader? At the executive level, yes, but I was certainly a leader all the way up. And I think young people, they don't often realize they're leading, uh, certainly within Deloitte. You join Deloitte and within a year or two, you're going to be given a team that you're leading, you know, from the time you're 23 or 24 years old. And then you're going to be managing and it's going to be a bigger team. And then you're going to be a senior manager and you're going to be managing multiple teams. So I was leading just in different ways, but that role of leading Audit and Assurance in Sydney was really my first executive role. It was the first time I sat on an executive committee of the organization, had to work with my peers much more seamlessly. And what's the difference between being the leader of a team, people you sit with and you get work done with and you delegate and you work together and you maybe mentor a little bit, and then moving into that, that, that executive leadership role? It's the same word. It's both leadership, and I'm sure that there are some cores that are the same. But what is the what is the practical difference? So, in your experience, you know, I don't think it's that different. As I reflect on it, I think great leaders 
do a lot of the same things no matter what level they're at. They show a vision. They give people a purpose for what they're doing. It doesn't matter if you're leading a project team or leading an organization. You better make sure the people around you know why they're doing what they're doing. They're inspired. They work together. They're collaborative. Um, So I think a lot of the skills that I got managing teams and projects and audits over many years served me well. It's just at a different level. And I, I know that sounds cliche, but this team thing cannot be underplayed, particularly in a world like we live in today. Industry 4.0, it's a complex world. Things are changing. No one person can know it all anymore. You know, the days of just, they used to call it the rock star CEO or the, the, you know, the single leader that knows all are gone. You better be able to tap into the knowledge, capability, and experience of others to deliver outcomes. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So just on your development as a, as a leader, as an individual, from the first team that you led probably as CPAs in San Francisco through to your first executive gig and through to being the chief executive for Deloitte in Asia Pacific, how have you changed and developed as a leader? Have there been any sort of moments that have really reinforced or changed you? Has there been experiences that that you will always see as that pivotal moment in your career? Yeah. So I like to say my greatest learnings happened when I knew the least. And for me, that has happened when I have put myself out of my comfort zone. Back to the point I made earlier about taking bold risks taking a challenge on calculated risks, but it's when you put yourself out of your comfort zone, you know less. So you actually have to lead in a different way, which is relying on the knowledge and experience of others. That happened when I moved on to a big client as a manager, that industry I'd never worked in. I was out of my comfort zone. Okay, I'm now, I'd been, actually interesting, my first client was a mining client a company called uh, Homestake Mining back in uh, the U.S., but I moved into the healthcare industry. Okay, mining, healthcare, very different. I had to learn. Uh, when I moved from Australia or U.S. to Australia, I didn't know the market, the economy, the players. I had to rely on others. Same thing's happening for me right now. As I moved in September into this Asia role, you just don't know as much, so you learn even more because you have to study more. And I think those are just massive step-ups in your growth as an individual and as a leader. In a counterintuitive way, it might almost be the best way to go into a new role, into a new leadership position, knowing very little about the local market or the product or the industry, because straight away, you do need to tap into the knowledge of the people you're leading, your members of your team. So that it kind of ingratiates you to them. To, you, know, they, you know, the new boss appreciates what I know. She needs me. She wants to tap into what I know. That's a really positive step. It, you are so right, David. And so I had honed, as we talked about, my technical skills as an, an accountant and an auditor. And clients often valued really quick decisions. They wanted to know the answer to this technical question like that. And I spent years developing the skill 
to answer quickly, to give the, out, the, the, the answer that they wanted, get to the right technical answer. But in leadership, actually often slowing down, reflecting, listening to different things gets you to a better answer. And it was when I moved to Australia and I was in that uncomfortable zone, I said, all right, I don't know who the key clients are here. I'm now in this position. Let me find the, the person that knows the most about our client base. Okay, I don't really know the people. Let me find, you know, Margaret Dreyer, you know more about people. You come work with me. Okay, I don't know about our offering. Let me get those people. And I don't, operations, you know, what are the operating levers for this business? I'll get Andrew Griffiths. So I pulled and this team around relationships me. straight away. Yeah, and then I'm listening to them. I'm like, all right, tell me about this. And back to your exact point, they then you're pulling a team together, and pretty soon that whole team gels, and it's pretty powerful. It's a great way to start a relationship with a new team. You, Versus coming in and telling, you know, yeah. sometimes if you stay in the same contents, you go in and you assume you know everything, and you're just going to say, David, you do this, and Joe and John and Sally, you do this, this, and this, and that's not a good way to build the team. And we've all experienced situations where someone has taken a step up as a leader into a high level team and they feel as though they have to prove themselves. And often they will prove themselves by what they know and setting the direction and ensuring everyone is, is marching to the beat of their drum. Where, and that's a, a really great way to get people offside. And you touched on it before the days of that all knowing rock star leader are over. It's the era of the true collaborator, and I think that's what you've described there. Now, you're someone with obviously a very well-developed understanding of team. I don't know if you read the questions I sent you. I put a hilarious joke in there. I said, because your, your profile says that you lead a team of 2,800 partners, and in the questions I said, uh, can you please name them? <laughs> because, of course, you don't really lead a team of 2,800 partners the further you rise within an organization and, and profiles say crazy things like that, how do you prioritize building relationships when your eye has to also be on the big picture, the strategic stuff, the big relationships, whether it's with government and industry and all of those kind of things, but you still have the effect. In, in fact, you even have the more powerful effect that when you walk down a hallway, people know you're there. How do you prioritize relationships with 2,800 partners how do you manage that at your level when you've got so much other stuff that's taking up your headspace? Yeah. So 2,800 partners. I mean, in Asia, uh, we have over 45,000 people. How many and, could you name? Yeah, way? and I, I certainly could yeah. name. Um, uh, I could name several hundred of the partners. But the point is, how do you connect with them so that they see the vision for the organization, the mission and the purpose of what we're trying to do and, and how we're doing it and how do you connect. So I'll give you one example. I needed to get I need to get messaging out. How do you communicate? That's one of the hardest challenges as a leader and the higher up you go, the harder it is, as you're saying, to connect. So the idea is I said, give me, I want the 300 most influential partners and I'm going to get them together. And then I said to them, you know what? You have the privilege of sitting in this room while we talk about our business and our priorities and where we're going. If each one of you touches 10 people, 10 other partners, that's 3,000 and we get to everybody. So I'm counting on you as leaders and influencers to take this message to the next level. And hopefully they're going out and saying, I was with Cindy, we were together, we're talking about the vision and the future for Deloitte. Here's what we're doing. So there's, a, you, you've got to, 
cascading influence. Yeah, tap into that the real hierarchy that exists within organizations. We've got the boxes on the org chart, but there's this other hierarchy that exists within organizations, the people who are real influencers and they can change the thinking and the perceptions of the people around them. They're the people who create the rumors. Yeah. So if you can work with them to create the right rumors, the right messages, the right the right coffee shop conversations, then you're off to a good start. It's amazing. To, it's not just the most senior people. You know, I didn't say the, the most experienced. I said the most influential. And that's the people that are connected and have the network. And I also try to tap into other segments of the organization, young leaders, new partner. So we just announced our new partners uh, here in Australia. It was last week, 67 new partners, which is fantastic personally write to each of them, come to the celebration dinner for them. So you just find ways to connect. And the young people are almost the most amazing. I was, this is, goes back a few years, but I was trying to get my profile up on social media and, you know, got teams advising me how to do this. And I was in the elevator and some brand new graduates were in the elevator and they, oh, Cindy, oh my, it's Cindy Hook. And they said to me, they said, can, famous here. They said, so they, can we have a selfie? I said, oh, sure. <laughs> and then they said, can we post it? And I said, sure. So the next day, I get the communications director calling up, you got 40,000 hits on social media, which is more than I'd ever gotten yeah. before yeah. with all trying yeah. to yeah. do it. You could but who knew? Plan that with teams of people and you get 20 likes. <laughs> exactly. You have a couple of Gen Yers in a lift. Boom. Boom. There we go. We got a, That's anyway, your plan. Yeah. That's your strategy. But I mean, it is an example of you. Sometimes you just got to let things inorganically happen, right? And that's about connecting with people and being genuine. Hey, you mentioned something there which intrigues those of us outside the tent, this idea of partners. What does it mean? You talked about 67 new partners here in Australia announced last week. I'm guessing that was a pretty exciting time in the career of those 67 individuals. What does it mean to be a partner? What kind of a, a step up is that in your career in a firm like Deloitte? A partner as an owner in the business. And that means you're truly vested in the organization. And I think it's such a huge step because the other partners are willing to share their capital and equity with you and their brand. So when you've earned the right to be the partner, it's a vote of confidence by all the other partners that are admitting you. It's also a vote of confidence by the new partner because they're going to invest their capital in the firm. And I believe partnerships are truly different than corporations. We don't have shareholders. Our shareholders are our partners. And it incentivizes a different behavior, I, I think. And um, it's hard to explain, but sense of partnership, that's a term often used around Deloitte. It means something like, you know, I've got your back, you've got mine, we're in this together, we're trying to build a business together. So you think of a partnership as the, the mom and pop shop where two guys, you know, two, two people found it and they, they're sharing in the profits. Well, we're not doing that with, you know, 3,000 partners across Asia. Because uh, it, 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 it is intriguing to those of us on the outside. And a lot of organizations don't have partnerships, obviously. A lot of organizations have outside investors, shareholders, what have you. And, it, and there's obviously a very different dynamic, but it, it has a mystique about it, that idea of becoming a partner. I only know it from watching TV shows, yeah. but it does have that. It's very interesting. And when you talked about that, my mind immediately went to, wow, there are 67 people getting around Brisbane at the moment who are probably walking on cloud nine because they've just achieved that 
probably a, a career lifetime ambition of becoming a partner here. How long does it usually take? What's the kind of average age of a partner in Deloitte? You know, I would say that they're usually um, been in the, the profession for anywhere from eight to 10, 12 years. And, you know, different career paths now, right? We're finding a lot. It used to be, you know, my career was quite traditional. I started my career as a graduate with Deloitte and came up through the ranks. But more and more, we're hiring partners that have gone from outside. They may have gone and run a business or they may have started with Deloitte and gone and got a different experience. And I think that's that's awesome. You know, I think the world is going to, in my sense, and I think it's true of old and young people, but people want to have different experiences and try different things. And I've been able to have amazing, varied experience within one organization, but that doesn't mean it's always going to work. And I think, you know, you're going to see more people trying a variety of things before ending up here. Hey, I don't want to overplay this, but something that you said earlier is I want to come back to that that risk that you took moving overseas, leaving the US to take up an opportunity that so many of the people around you said was not a great opportunity. Tell us about the impact that had on your life and your family and where you were at as a human being, as well as a professional. And how do you calibrate that? How do you make that decision? Because I bet, despite your obvious talent and and ability and commitment to the company, the fact that you were willing to move is one of the differentiators. There'd be a lot of people who have talent and ambition and all of those other things, but they just, I can't do it. My husband's got my his job here or my wife's got her job there. The kids have just started school. We live in it. I can't do it. I can't move to the other side of the world. What kind of impact did it have on you? Tell us about the decision process. Well, I think one of the great learnings for me and I would advise others on is I was at a point in my career that I was actually kind of bored and I felt like I was in a rut would be the best way to describe it. Well, I was really successful and I was getting new opportunities. It was a lot the same. So I was at a point in my career where I was looking for something different and actively seeking it, actually. And then the Australia thing came up and I went to my husband and said, look, I got this opportunity to go to Australia. And he said, wow, that sounds really cool. Send me a postcard. Uh, yeah. No, he was excited for it. And and we were able, I, he worked at the time um, for Oracle. Uh, and he was able to negotiate a move. Uh, we had two kids. Our sons were six and 10 at the time. And I, I would say, so a couple lessons, who your spouse is and picking the right spouse is very important to career success. And I had a really supportive spouse that it was both of our careers, not just my, his, both of our careers mattered. And then my other piece of advice is my kids who are now 17 and 21 have moved twice. To, to Australia and now to Singapore, and they're fine. Um, <laughs> they survived. You're not going to. They actually, say? they're beyond fine. They're awesome. They're doing great. Um, they did and, most of their schooling here in Australia. Right? Yeah, and they are now Australian citizens, proudly so. Do they sound like me or do they sound like you? Um, it depends who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and actually, you know, they're boys. So in America, you definitely want to sound Australian. And in Australia, you want to sound American, right? That's how you get Yeah, right. They uh, can turn it on yeah, so they depending can, they on the can, geographic yeah. location. Yeah. Anyway, one other piece of advice I would say with your family is – your family's only impression of your job is what you give them. And if you come home every day and are negative, oh my gosh, 
I had the worst day. I can't believe my boss, the clients being so difficult, this project's off. To, if everything you say is negative, that's what your family and particularly your children hear. On the other side, if you come over a day and say, wow, I'm working on this really exciting project. Do you know the impact we have involving your kids? So I, I did learn that if I pulled my kids in, and when you have little kids, I mean, all you need to do is bring them to the office and let them ride the elevator. And that's exciting. They the think your job's cool. Mommy's got a great job. And now, you know, I get invited to go to, to crazy things and, and get them excited with that. And even when you move, they had a say. So that were a six and eight or six and six and ten six when we moved ten. to Australia. It's a pretty safe age. Yeah. They they wouldn't you know they would have had friends for sure, but they weren't teenagers. And you can imagine a teenager might have a, a you know more so, trouble. So now Justin's doing just that. moved. My sixteen year old. Yeah. Well, he just turned seventeen. Yeah. But sixteen, I said, hey, we need to go to Asia. I I've got this gig. We need to move to Asia. It's going to be too hard to travel from Australia. I said, what do you reckon? Should we move to Hong Kong, Tokyo, or Singapore? I didn't dictate. So Justin had a say. And we, he said, well, I think we should go to Hong Kong or Singapore. We took him to both. He looked at the schools. He said, I actually like the Singapore school better. He helped pick the apartment. So I think when you have teenagers, you can't force it on them. You have to have them be part of it. Now, there's been no complaining. It's not like, mom, you made me come. You've ruined my life. It's like, wow, we're living in Singapore and this is an adventure we're doing together. And by the way, he's super excited because he just, uh, he finished his school on Friday and he's coming back to Australia for Queen's birthday weekend to stay with his friends. So he's, I think that it's been as good for me as for them. They've got friends around the world now and and experience. You answered my question because what I was getting at, obviously, was maybe it would be more difficult if your kids were a bit older. Maybe that would have been the thing, can't do the move. You're still back in San Francisco leading a team of CPAs. But it sounds as though you would have a strategy for whatever age they're at. Involve them in the decision. Take them down there. Get them to have a look at the school's you know, whatever age they're at, there's a way of managing. Yeah, and you have to pick what, what's important to your kid. What will make them excited? I mean, when Justin was six and we were moving to Australia, we're going to have a pool, uh, yeah, right. or we're going to live by the beach. Yeah. Or did you know in Australia you can see kangaroos? We're just uh, jumping right down the main street of every city. Of course, it takes you then a year and a half to ever see a kangaroo. Um, <laughs> the but first but one's my point is, it, it's the same day to day. Involve your kids. Because if your kids think what you're doing is important and you like it, they get why you leave them to go to work. If they think, why is she going to do that thing she doesn't really like into. or she hates? Yeah. Good. Good answers, by the way. You passed that test. Oh, thank you. Because that, that, that is a thing, isn't it? For people who live in large organizations, you know, global organizations, opportunities sometimes are not in your home city and there's decisions to be made there. Balancing ambition with the needs of the family and how you go about creating that balance or that integration between your work life and your everything else life. It's a really interesting conundrum. And I know that a lot of my listeners and I know a lot of people at, at Wimmark are interested in those kind of questions. It's not just about moving, it's about that whole balance of life. Just in general, then, as you have climbed the ladder to very senior positions with two boys at home and a husband who has his own career. You've moved a couple of times. Have you done a good job of the work-life balance thing? No, probably not in a lot of people's minds. But I, I sort of don't like the world word balance that much anymore. I feel like life is just integrated. 
and how do you make the most of your life? So I feel like I've had a great life. I have no regrets. And I, I, that's really a piece of advice I would give. Don't be too hard on yourself. You know, have I been the perfect mom? You know, in some people's eyes, no. But are, do my kids think I'm a great mom? Yeah, success. You know, the only measure that counts. Yeah, yeah. So don't be too hard on yourself. Make sure you can look at your life and you've been true to your values, what you care about, and measure it that way, not by how others will judge you. And I think we do too much working moms judging non-working moms, non-working moms judging working moms. And we need to get dads in that debate too. But yeah, make sure it's your measures of what you value and you've lived true to those. And on that measure, I would say, I think I've done, I am very happy with my life. That's a great answer. And that, that topic I know is a, a really hairy one for a lot of listeners. That is something that they think about a lot. You know, your answer there is so positive and optimistic and realistic. And the other side of that is people saying, I feel as though I'm not doing a good job anywhere. I feel as though I'm letting work down because I've got to rush away and pick up the kids. And I feel as though I'm letting my family down because I've got my mind on work and I've got to go and check my email at night. Everyone is missing out on me. But you gave a, a nice, balanced, optimistic view. If you're just true to your values in that space, then you can't really be letting anyone down. I like it. Very good. You passed mm -hmm. again, Cindy. Yeah. Now, I have two more questions for you, and one of them is a big one, and I hope we've given it enough time. I know that through your career, the concept of inclusion has become really important to you. Can you tell us about the way that's developed in your mind, how it's infiltrated your value set, why it's so important to you now, and what you do about it on a practical level? Inclusion is huge for me. And in fact, I was asked recently, uh, you know, you've just taken over in Asia, what's the one word that you'd want to describe the culture of Deloitte Asia Pacific in five years under your leadership? And I said, inclusive. And the reason it's so important to me may sound like it's soft, but it's actually a hard business imperative. And I know that when people feel included, they will perform at their best. And if every individual is performing at their best, collectively, Deloitte will perform at its best. It's best. So there is a business aspect to this. But the way I think about inclusion, it just starts at the base level with fairness. Are you being fair and respectful to everybody? Are you paying men and women equal, equal pay for equal work? Are you giving equal opportunities for promotions or whatever? The next level is respect and valued. And that is where I actually really respect what you bring to the table. I value your unique contribution. And then the highest level of inclusion is where there's a sense of psychological and, and real safety. You feel truly safe being exactly who you are saying what you think, putting your views forward. If you think of an organization like Deloitte, we're trying to solve complex problems. We need really diverse people that will speak their mind, put their views forward, and, and are, are valued, respected for that. So, you know, we move up the curve of inclusion, and, and that's what uh, I hope is that every single 
person that comes to Deloitte feels like they can be who they are and they will reach their true potential. What's changed in Deloitte over your 32 years in this inclusion conversation? Oh, huge. Um, Paint a picture of Deloitte 32 years ago for me. Oh, we were probably at that point when I was a graduate, we were probably bringing in 45% of the, the new graduates would have been women. You know, it was so counting's been graduate, you know, hiring women. So when I, I started in a group of you know, 30 or 40 of us, and it wouldn't reasonably gender balanced, but when we looked up, there was hardly any women in leadership. What a suits and gray hair. Yeah. And I remember in this is now 28 years ago. They decided that we needed gender, this was in the US, gender bias training. And it was called Men and Women as Colleagues. And there were so few women that to make the groups balanced right to run these sessions, every woman in Deloitte had to do it three times because there weren't enough women. (laughs) Now, you look back, that was 28 years ago. We set on an initiative to get to gender balance. Today, We sit here in Deloitte, Australia, 28% of our partners, which you could call the leaders in the firm, are women. So 28 years, 28%. And while that's massive improvement, you go back, you know, 28 years ago, there would have been two or three women partners in all of Deloitte, and now there's hundreds. But it's not good enough. Yeah, 28%. What other business imperative would you say I'm trying to get to equality and 28 years later look at it and go, oh, great job. We're we're at 28%. So while I think there's been massive progress, I've seen a huge wave of change, particularly in my time in Australia. We've still got a lot of work to do. So not only are you the chief executive for Deloitte in Asia Pacific, you are also a member of the Deloitte Global Executive Committee. You must see some, that'd be a meeting to go to. Yeah. Now, uh, are you- I was just in New York at one of them last week. Very nice. And I bet they're catered nicely. Not so much. Really? Uh, you know. Not indulgent? No. No? Yeah. In a partnership, you can't waste money. Of course. <laughs> I suppose, you know, it is an accounting firm. So yeah, yeah. We, we do base. keep the yeah, tight yeah. rein on expenses. How many women are on that committee? Uh, only four. How many, how many on the committee? Out of 25. Wow. So that's not great. And how do you, do you feel? Now in Deloitte, a Australia, that executive committee is 40%. Women, so massive. Uh, you know, kudos to Richard Deutsch, the CEO in Australia. And how do you feel as one of four women in a committee of twenty-eight on the global committee? Do you feel outnumbered? Do you feel like a trailblazer? Do you just feel like one of twenty-eight equals? How does it feel for you? I mean, I don't think about it that much on the day in the room. I just get on with it, and it's really about what you can contribute. But it does bother me that we aren't doing better. And, you know, so how do you change that really is about sponsoring the next generation of leaders through. And I will tell you a massive shift. If you go back, certainly when I was a new partner and even five, 10 years ago, I was like, I got this thing figured out as a woman. I'm just going to get about my business. I've figured out how to navigate this. And I've completely changed my attitude. I need to you know, create the environment, sponsor women, bring more through. And just because I figured it out doesn't mean the environment's right. I'm pretty outspoken by nature. I'm 
you know, confident. I, you know, will charge through walls. You know, it's hard to put me off. But back to the inclusive thing, not all women are like me. And in fact, I think some of the men that may be more quiet or not as assertive, but still are outstanding people, we need to create that environment where all different styles, it's not just gender. I actually think there's a style that gets ahead that we're leaving a, a people behind. Yeah, that we're leaving an, yeah. an alpha zoo. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, is a bit of risk of that in a professional services firm. Yeah, there sure I like is. that alpha zoo. Yeah, I just made that, that up right there. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. All right. So we have only a couple of minutes left. What's next for Cindy Hook? I know you're pretty new in the role that you're in now. Tell us about what's next for you in that hard kind of career thing, but also what's next for you in terms of what you're learning and growing and, and how you're developing. Yeah. So really what's next for me is to prove myself in this role. I'm certainly not looking to the next role when I've only been you know, seven or eight months into this. What I'm loving about this role is that it's just broadening my perspective and I'm learning at an exponential rate again. You know, we talked earlier about when you make a shift, you learn a lot and just understanding how to navigate Asia. So just want to prove myself. We made, um, you know, commitments that we were going to serve clients better by being more integrated in Asia. And so the proof will be when our clients say, you know what, I'm getting the best of Deloitte. You know, whether I'm in Australia or I'm in China or I'm in Japan, you have amazing capability and, and it will be the client's endorsement. So that's, that's what's next. I'll keep doing it as long as I'm learning and being challenged and, and growing. And then when that slows down, I'll go, all right, well, now what's next? Wonderful. Cindy Hook, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Very welcome, David. It's a pleasure meeting and talking with you. And that was Cindy Hook. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun chatting with her. One of the things I enjoy about meeting senior people, people who've achieved a lot, is when you see pour out of them the characteristics that set them apart from the rest. And that's what I got from Cindy. She's impressive, articulate. She's relatable and insightful. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Cindy on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.